0: One question I of asked myself over the week as I've been presenting this material to you, actually, why am I doing this? And I actually know why I'm doing this with you, going through a lot of this material, going through some of the basic teachings and trying to make them um, accessible in a, in, in a way which is applicable to your daily lives. And it's because the greatest gift that can be given, which is one that produces fearlessness, is the gift of the Dharma. This is the way it's stated in the text. This is really what produces fearlessness. It's really good understanding, really understanding the Dharma, really understanding the implications of what it's about. Not as a theoretical construct. Remember, I've been saying that all along. None of this is theory. It all applies to your actual life. It's there to be discerned, to be palpated in your living condition, in your day-to-day existence, in your work, home life, and in every sphere of your life. And if we really are going to, in some senses, deal with the big existential problem, the big existential problem here, as we know, over the week, is impermanent. This is the massive existential problem with which we are confronted, day to day, actually, minute to minute, we are confronted by this. Impermanence, which is so ubiquitous, it's so there all the time for us. And in the end, there is, of course, death. Just a quotation, a couple of quotations, actually. <clears throat> it comes from a 14th century Tibetan teacher. <clears throat> Since our lives are short and it is certain that we will die, when suddenly we are assailed by the savage conditions of death, like a flame in a strong wind, flickering and unstable at every moment. Engage now in the search for meaning that life holds. In other words, don't put it off. Don't stave it off. Engage in it now, because this is the only time you're going to find it. In the now. And he goes on to say, it's actually out the same text. There is never, and he kind of underlines never here, by duplicating in Tibetan you actually emphasize something by saying it twice. So, there is never any mental security, everything, absolutely everything is insecure, changes and has no essence whatsoever. All things are momentary, impermanent and disintegrate. You should think from your heart about how quickly you will die. It is the same with the entire world about you, it too, everything will disintegrate. Not even a single tip of hair will remain. Everything will become empty. There will be only space. Years, months, days and divisions of time are momentary. Impermanent and disintegrate. And are continuously passing. There is no mental security whatsoever. I you reiterate that. There is no mental security whatsoever. Very soon, life will depart from your body therefore from today you must think it is completely uncertain which will happen <clears throat> first tomorrow or the time when my lifespan shall be over well before we get all pessimistic and gloomy about that i think we can see the point of what he's saying he's saying that we have to confront it we have to confront this we actually have, have to come into Contact with this existential reality. We can't avoid it. It will catch up with you. Nevertheless, in our ordinary condition, and this is why, of course, as I mentioned on the first night, that in a way, particularly in the Western world, um, but not just the Western world, in a way, death itself is not a topic for polite, dinner-time conversation. It's not something that we discuss easily it's not something we bring up in ordinary conversation lightly. Death is to be shunned, it's to be avoided and I think almost in the West really that's where we are and that's where we have to look. In the West we have a pathological um, a, a pathological reaction towards death and impermanence. We run away from them and scoot away from them <coughs> as fast as we can. So, the condition is that we can be overwhelmed by these thoughts when we're actually confronted by them. When we actually begin to look at them, when we begin to look at the condition of our life and how short, in a sense, our lifespan is. When we begin to look that everything will be stripped away. And the poet Rilke has a wonderful phrase for it. He says, We are in this world forever taking leave. We are. We are forever taking leave of what is around us. Nothing, as the quotation says, not even a tip of hair will remain. Nothing will be there. So again, we can be overwhelmed by this thought, or we can take the dharma as our refuge. And that's partly what the meaning of the refuge is, of taking refuge in the Dharma. And because this is always, if you like, a safety net that we can fall on to when times get tough, when things get hard in terms of the confrontation with these existential realities. So it's absolutely necessary for us to have an understanding, but not just, as I say, a conceptual understanding, and understanding of it comes into our day-to-day existence. Because that is only where it makes sense. It makes no sense in any other place. All teachers of all traditions will emphasize this. That to really perceive the Dharma is to perceive it in everyday life. To perceive it moment to moment. Now the Dharma, funny word, strange word, again it's a word that used a lot in Indian religion. I mean, Buddhism isn't the only dharma. There are many other dharmas. But in the Buddhist sense of the word dharma, the word dharma actually has a prescriptive and a descriptive content. In terms of a descriptive content, it is the way things actually are. It is the way things actually are. In other words, it's the kind of laws that drive the universe. Impermanence permanence being one of them. Paradox, of course, being the only permanent is impermanence. Yeah, that's one of the laws behind everything. And so, confrontation with the Dharma is a confrontation, or coming into contact with the way things actually are. Moving away from fantasized existence, the kind of existence that's built up in the chain of dependent origination, the fantasized existence, which will give rise to a fantasized birth and which will give rise eventually to its decline and disintegration no matter whether you've got what you wanted remember we finished on that last night it, you know, not all good things will last because no matter whether you get what you want in terms of life it will be stripped away from you uh, it will decline, it will disintegrate, it will fall apart yet, yet and I say this because we're going to keep coming back to this theme for the rest of the retreat Yet at the kind of heart of that story about loss is freedom. Is actually freedom. When we realise the non-essentiality of everything, and that we're confronted only by a world of dependencies, a world of flux and change and things coming to existence, only on causes and conditions. This is one of the Buddha's unique insights. Into the way things actually are, is that everything, absolutely everything, depends on causes and conditions. Um, when we understand our psychological makeup, as described in the 12 links that I went through with you last night, we understand, of course, that our psychology, our psychology of samsara, because really what, that's what the 12 links is, a psychology of samsara. That psychology of samsara is a dependent arising. When we look at a kind of general condition for dependent arising, and I have already said this on one of the nights previously, when we look at the general prescription for dependent arising, is this happens, that happens, that ceases to happen, this ceases to happen, and it is exactly the way the Buddha describes it. He actually makes almost similarly the same gestures which were described in the text to do this. This happens, that happens, this ceases to happen, that ceases. So what we're confronted with is a world of conditioned phenomena with, in a sense, no essence behind it. The self, this most cherished of our possessions, ourselves, which I've joked about at various stages in the week so far, this self is merely a dependent arising with no essence to it whatsoever. Where we think we're going to find the self, we find This is a thought which even Western philosophers started to have from about the 18th century onwards. Um, Western thinkers. i mean, it took them a long time to catch up. Um, you know, from two, 2,500 years ago to the 18th century. Um, but by the 18th century, you had um, a Scottish philosopher called David Hume working in Edinburgh, who actually said, "Every time I look for myself, I can't seem to find anything. <laughs> All I find is a bundle of perceptions." That's the way he described it. All I find is the bundles of perceptions which are arising and falling, and I can't find the self. And then in the 20th century, um, we have kind of Wittgenstein scratching his head and saying, hmm, perhaps the self is merely a grammatical error.
1: <laughs>
0: and what he meant by that was the notion of the self was dependent on the grammar of our languages. And the grammar of Indo-European languages is one subject and predicate. You know, in other words, there is a subject to which there are predicates of experience. And so, every time we talk about a predicate, we have to have ownership for a predicate. And what I mean by that is, I am happy. You know, happy is tied to an I here. Not all languages work this way, by the way, but in the European languages do work this way. So I am happy, I am mm-hmm. sad, I am joyful. You know, really what we're saying is there's happiness going on and there's sadness going on. That's all. We don't have to postulate some solid sense of ironness underlying all of this. I mean, some phrases in our languages don't mislead as the same construction. You know, it is raining. We don't go around looking for it when it's raining. What we, all it is is a handy use of language. So, really, what I'm trying to get to is there's no essence to this notion of self, and this is something even Western philosophers start to delineate in, you know, from the 18th century onwards. Now, very technically. And I'm going to give you a kind of bit of technical stuff, and then I'm going to explain, hopefully down to a practical issue. Because this is one that usually bamboozles most people, that pick up any book on Buddhism. And they come across this term which sends their minds usually into a tailspin, and it's this term called emptiness. And to come across this, the actual term is shunyata. Emptiness, or shunya, empty. So, in other words, what we have is emptiness of self, emptiness of intrinsic existence, emptiness of essence. So, remember, when we look at the five conditions that would make up the self, the five conditions that make up the self are again, I'll just run through them very quickly are body, form, feeling, which you should be very familiar with since you've been checking it out quite a lot over the last few days, feeling discrimination or perception which includes the realm of language and the way that we use language to discriminate the karmic formations or the um, formations in general, habits which I talked about even in the chain of dependent arising in fact I talked a lot about it and then consciousness so we take a unitary phenomenon which we believe to be there called itself and on analysis it doesn't appear to be there at all and actually these five things get broken up even further in further analysis. Now, in other words, we can look for a self in any of those five arising, but we won't find one. Now, we haven't done it, but there are many, many meditations that go with this. And I remember once, when I was um, in a monastery in India, Um, living in one of the Tibetan monasteries, where I was there for about two and a half years. Um, we had a little exercise given to us. It was given to us by one of the Dalai Lama students, which was, find yourself. And we had to search for it. And we had to look. And we did this for weeks. Absolutely weeks. I mean, you think you've got a tough time doing this for a few days. (laughs) (coughs) We did this for absolutely weeks. And by the end of it, I was not calm. I might die. After about a good two-thirds of the way into it, I was kind of getting very, very agitated by this whole thing, because it saying, look for the self, is it in the body, is it in the feelings, is it in this, is it in that? Is it in this, and we kept looking and looking and looking and looking, and that's what we did day on day, hour on hour. It was, it was about ten hours of meditation at least, sitting meditation every day, during this procedure every day. And by this time I, I kind of exploded after the <laughs> thirds of the way through, and went up to Leon who was the teacher, and said to him, why are we doing
1: this?
0: And he said it very calmly, he said to me, he said, and Spartans are very kind of practical people, and he said, it's a bit like looking for your purse. <laughs> I went <have> pardon? <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit like looking for your purse. Yeah." Well, you know when you've lost your purse, what do you do? You look for in every possible place it might be. Until you convince yourself you've lost it.
1: <laughs>
0: this is his recipe <laughs> for convincing yourself there isn't actually any intrinsic self there at all, to keep on looking. And in a sense that's what we're doing often in a lot of these exercises and convincing ourselves there's nothing substantial there. Because remember what I've said all along and I put it in really quite ordinary English. We just don't get it most of the time. We hear it, we practice it, but we just don't get it. We don't get the idea that there is nothing permanent there at all. That there is nothing other than arising and passing away. And it's a very practical technique. Keep on looking, keep on looking, keep on looking is to actually, actually, turn this kind of conceptualization that we have into some degree of realisation, that you cannot grasp after a chimera, you cannot grasp after a fantasy. <coughs> now, that's not to say there isn't this process of the self going on, because those five conditions create the process of the self. But there is nothing underlying it which is essential. So, coming back to my little bit of technicality, the self is empty. And what it's empty of is intrinsic existence. It doesn't intrinsically exist, other than being independent arising. All of our mental phenomena don't exist intrinsically. They arise and pass away dependent on conditions. So, the word emptiness, which as I say often makes people's minds go into the tail because they, it's often explained vastly, in a vastly complicated way where there's no need to be that emptiness is simply the absence of something we believe to be there. That is all. The absence of the belief in something intrinsic, something, in other words, permanent, underlying a changing phenomena. Now this is considered to be such a profound insight in the schools of Buddhism which really utilise this idea, and it goes really through the whole of Mahayana Buddhism, it comes out of the first century, beginning of the second century and it goes throughout the whole of Buddhism in the Mahayana world. You know, so from Zen, Chan Buddhism to the forms of Buddhism which are practiced in Korea and Vietnam which are also forms of Zen and Chan. to The Buddhism which is practiced in Tibet particularly and the Buddhism which is originally practiced in Northern India. This, in, this understanding that things lack like intrinsic existence, is essential, they say, for the overcoming of the fear of death. But actually, the fear of death is the fear of something being obliterated which isn't really there at all, which is in other words this permanent, solid entity. When we really begin to taste it, and I'm not talking about just hearing it like this and conceptualising it, when we really begin to taste it in our experience this lack of anything intrinsic the lack of something underlying all of our experience then we can start to let go of fear of intelligence and fear of death there is nothing other really than the flux of experience there is nothing really other than the simple movement the flowing movement of experience and the flowing of the world itself which bore you yet again in the phrase it arises, it, away, it arises and it passes away and it arises and it passes away and it arises and passes away and that is the nature of the world that is the nature of our experience it is not something solid now what does this mean in practical life? because this is really weird it counts life when seen through the eye of shunyata, through the eye of emptiness and this is often referred to even as the eye of insight the eye of wisdom, I don't particularly like that translation but it's the eye of insight, the eye of understanding when we really see things in this way then we cease to grasp and what really the idea of shunyata, idea, experience you know, with the emphasis on experience of Shindata is meant to do, is meant to undermine that basic facet of the chain of dependent origination. <coughs> Craving and grasping. Because what exactly, and here's the question for you, what exactly are you grasping after? You know? What we're after usually is a conception. A conception of something, a conception of beauty, of permanence, of intrinsicality, whatever it is that we see within the object, we see within the person, and an attempt to grasp after it is grasping after shifting sand. It's like how you know sand is running through your hand. There is nothing intrinsic to it. Now, this is not, and this is very much really stress this. This is not to say, oh, nothing matters. Nothing exists. It's all emptiness. I've heard that enough times as well, from time to time. Everything is emptiness, it doesn't really matter. Of course it matters. Because all emptiness is taken away is the idea of intrinsic existence. It's left everything else exactly in place. Everything else exactly in place. Nothing is solid and unchanging. But this doesn't mean it doesn't matter and it doesn't exist. All it means is there is an absence of something that we believe to be there that is not there, when we really, really begin to experience it. Now, translated in terms of the teachings of the Buddha himself, this is nothing other than insight into impermanent and anatta, or anatta not self. It's the same thing, just written in a different way, just thought through to its logical extreme. That there is not self at the heart of all of our experience. Where we think there is self, at the heart of our experience, there is actually an absence of it. And this is really the absence of an ego. This is the absence of that spider sitting in the web trying to control everything. In that conception of the ego that we so rigidly cling to, now we feel it constantly, don't we? With our emotion, with our um, ordinary feelings—I'm using feelings in the conventional sense, not in the technical Buddhist sense here—in our feelings and our emotions, all of them are kind of reiterating to us: there is this self, there is this self, and I am important, and it's important that I kind of am here. In this way. But it's a very egotistical sense. It's not just a valuation in terms of being, it's an egotistical sense of being in this world. Being in this world, as I say, the controller, controlling everything. And we wish to be in control. This is one of our formations. This is one of our habits thinking there is permanence, thinking there is permanence for myself, thinking there is permanence for the other and that I can control the other but well, have you have discovered that one's a bit of a loser <laughs> in trying to control the other yeah. we fail miserably usually in our attempts to control yet we still operate with the idea that we can control now what this actually means, and again in very practical terms is when there is thought of self as opposed to the absence of self and this is not absence of a self in process and I want to keep emphasising that to you this is the absence of an intrinsic self an unchanging phenomena a real me yeah. that is going to be unchanging well, in the absence of that there is a chance for real relationship to come about Not a relationship which is dependent on their ego self, which is wanting to be in control and requires the other, whatever that other is, its friend or lover or whatever, to be something for them in some way or another. So, in seeing the absence of self and within self and other can lead to an elimination, a dropping away of our tendency to keep on grasping after something, keep on trying to solidify the situation, so we can come into genuine relationship. Now, I said last night, I did hold this out as a promising note, and I'm going to come to it, that actually the understanding, the true understanding of Shunyata should give rise to love and compassion and empathy. And that might seem very odd. And so simply talking about this seemingly very abstract thing. And I don't know if it does sound abstract, I hope it doesn't. But it's seemingly talking about a slightly abstract idea of there not being a self. Of there not being this permanent fixed entity. Then it will lead to an understanding of things in terms, not of grasping, but in terms of compassion. In terms of love, in terms of kindness, in terms of empathy. Now, these are all intrinsic terms. Most of you will have come across them in Buddhism. Yeah. Wisdom and compassion. I don't, might not like the translation of wisdom, but compassion is pretty good. Um, these are almost the governing features of virtually every Buddhist text you'll likely to pick up. They're generally mentioned somewhere in there unless it happens to be a text on logic or something. Um, but mostly you'll find these two terms wisdom and compassion, or understanding and understanding and actually the one the Buddha uses in the early text far more than even compassion is empathy. The word empathy. Mm-hmm. He talks continuously about metta. And lack of grasping is going to lead to a rise of these, give rise to them. So when we truly cease to grasp, compassion comes into being, because it means a turning away from the self. It means turning away from everything that is related to that self. For example, self-obsession, which, in other words, is another way of talking about being full of self. That is all. When we're obsessed by ourselves, when we're obsessed by our our problems and our difficulties with life, we don't really see or come into relationship with the other. You now, there's a the story. In the story of the Buddha's awakening, the Buddha's awakening, it said when the Buddha attained awakening, he didn't actually necessarily want to teach. Um, he didn't actually. He he was kind of blissful from the awareness and everything that had given him come to him in his you know, moment of awakening when he woke up to actually the truth of of to dependent origination. This is part of the content of his awakening to actually see them to see how samsara was built up and therefore how he could relinquish it and this is the content of his awakening, he didn't necessarily want to teach it because he said, as he said later on it is difficult it's difficult to explain it's difficult to teach but it said in the text that he turns outwards and sees suffering humanity He sees, in particular, five previous disciples who he's been practising some forms of yogic austerities with. He sees them, he sees the condition of their dukkha, and he teaches from compassion to them. Now notice here, the very decisive movement, he turns away from himself, he turns and looks outward. The actual text uses, if you translate it properly, it actually means it. He turns and looks outward. In other words, he directs his gaze from being inward to being outward. And actually the very term which is in, in Sanskrit and Pali, which is karuna. Karuna is the actual term for compassion. And it's derived from a root which literally means to do that, to turn outward. So the first movement for us to generate compassion or love or I can come on to empathy, the word he uses even more than compassion, is to turn outward, to become, you know, in a sense, free of the shackles of self which hold it. In other words, to have seen its emptiness, to have seen and to experience its lack of substantiality, and to turn and see an other in their suffering condition. That is the first movement of any compassion that we can generate. That's the first movement, even, of love, which becomes the precursor for the development of compassion. Now, this love itself also, and I emphasised this over the week so far and tomorrow, we're actually going to do a whole set of practices based on metta. Because metta, I think, is severely lacking, often in the world of practice. And particularly love and kindness towards oneself. And this is not what I call narcissism. It's not a sort of nice narcissistic preening of oneself. But it's genuinely beginning to accept our foibles and our problems and everything else and to treat them kindly. To think not only of the the neurotic and the negative aspects of ourselves and here self in process, but also of the good aspects of ourselves, those aspects of ourselves which we often put much lower or even ignore and emphasise the negative aspects of our experience. And so this is a vital component of beginning even on the road to compassion, is the development of kindness and gentleness towards oneself. When I was living in Sri Lanka and uh, working with Sri Lankan meditation teacher. There he became a very, very good friend. But when he first encountered people who were practicing in the West and he first came over here, he was absolutely horrified. Absolutely he couldn't believe it what low esteem that people have for themselves. You know, how lacerating we are and self critical and damaging we are to ourselves because we are in a sense so cruel to ourselves. Now, in a way, and I don't mean this in any kind of pathological sense, but in a way, of course, there's cruelty as to ourselves. I do use that word deliberately, It's cruelty to ourselves is something that is reflected in our ordinary day-to-day experience. Because if we're cruel to ourselves, it becomes easier to become cruel to others as well. In fact, I often joke about it and say, we, actually in England, we make it into a virtue, being cruel to ourselves and then being cruel to others. I'm only telling you what I will tell you about myself. Yeah. Yeah. In other words, yeah, I've been cruel to myself. So I'll lacerate you as well. Here. And yeah, we do turn it into a virtue, and it isn't. It's something very, very damaging. Very, very damaging. Until we can begin to treat our minds and even our bodies, but particularly our minds, a lot more kindly, then we are always going to be confronted with. These problems of self-criticism and neuroses which seem to be us particularly in the West. Now that is the primary condition for then the development of love towards others, the genuine kind of feeling for others, which can eventually of course culminate in equanimity, an equal feeling for others. This is the kind of goal that's spoken about. Now, one of the images that always, and it's actually from a text in Kuala Lumpur, one of the images that always inspired me, particularly when I first started practicing, was an image that this text talks about, which is, it says the Buddha walks through the world with bliss-bestowing hands. And I thought, what a wonderful image. Whether it's true or not, it doesn't matter. It's just a wonderful image of how somebody can move through the world and not create pain and misery and disharmony, but can move through the world and create some degree of harmony within it. And as an aspiration, if nothing else, it's something that very personally influenced me, um, that one can have this aspiration to become, in that way, less destructive in this world. And that's really what is at the found of these teachings on compassion and love. And they're really about coming into genuine relationships. Now I'm going to give you another couple of terms, I mean I, I don't really like doing this, you don't have to remember them. Um, but it's just I want to give you a feeling of the resonances of some of these terms. Because one of them is the one empathy, because actually empathy can sound a bit strange, although I'm sure we all understand what it means. Um, but in Sanskrit, this word is anukrsha, and actually in Pali, um, anukampa. And this word actually means, well, its most basic meaning is to tremble with another. Um, but actually, when you look into it, it becomes even more powerful than that, because it actually means to cr- means to cry out, at the crying out of another. In other words, to be that in harmony with another that all it can do is generate feelings of compassion for the other. So out of the arises, compassion. Now, compassion in the tradition becomes the genuine mode of real relationship. Love becomes the genuine mode of real relationship, if we take it at the lower level. And what we mean by that, and I touched on it last night, to love and to care, another term. Taking care, about sort of pramada, careless about pramada. Yeah, we can be careful, we can care for another, or we can be careless, or couldn't care less, actually, as is often the case. And in our caring relationship, our caring relationship in terms of love, this can often mean a genuine feeling of being with another, but not wanting to possess not wanting, coming back to self, to control the other. Where there is control, in a sense I think we have to look carefully, I'm not saying it's completely absent, but I think we have to look carefully as to whether there is genuine love there. And in fact most relationships, fact, I'm being cynical here, but most relationships I think are usually a meeting of two monologues, (sighs) as opposed to a meeting of two minds, or a meeting of two hearts, or anything we can put in that way. Okay. There is not really a genuine relationship going on in terms of care and carefulness and of love. And so I think we have to look, you know, again because of practice, we kind of put it into our real everyday. Because most of us will probably be involved in relationships with friends and you know, lovers and partners and everything else. And that we need to look very carefully at those relationships. Because often we can detect something which is inauthentic about them. And I'm very fond of some, like, some of the people who hear me talk regularly would know this very well because I often talk about this, because it's a wonderful cartoon series that I came across. Um, and I often use it as an illustration of what I call the inauthentic relationship, between, particularly between the male and the female. And it's a little cartoon, and there's quite a lot of squares in this cartoon, but it's a man and a woman sitting over a dinner table. You can take the dinner table with a candle in the middle and a bottle of wine and all the usual sort of stuff there. And he's kind of leaning across the table talking to her. And above each of the bubbles, and there's lots of them, I might add, I won't say how many, but there's lots of them. Each of the bubbles in his head, there is me, 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 me. <laughs> and it goes on, you know, for about well, at least about ten squares or so of this. And then he's obviously finished what he's saying because um, the next square shows him leaning back in his chair, and she leans across the table, and above the bubble in her head goes me, and he goes. <laughs> Now, I'm, perhaps I'm being cynical <laughs> I'll own up for that one if you, if you accuse me of it. But I think it, it does say something about what I call, rather than the meeting of minds, the meeting of monologues, that <laughs> sometimes actually really there is not a lot of seeing of each other, because there's not actually really a lot of love and care there, in the genuine sense of allowing and being, in a sense, I'm going to use a term which is actually derived from the philosophical term, which is a clear space for another, to manifest. We're so full of ourselves, coming back to where I started, we're so full of ourselves, there's no room for another in there. Yeah. How can I squeeze somebody in when there's this kind of self kicking and screaming? Actually Iris Murdoch has a wonderful phrase for her. she called it the great big fat ego. <laughs> was kind of dominating. I always get impressed with one of those spoiled children kicking and stamping its feet every time it doesn't get its own way or somebody's not being interested in me, (laughs) for example. You know, and that's really what is at the heart of the inauthentic relation, is that being full of oneself. So the technique of using Shinya Ta, and obviously helping also to quell our fears of death and impermanence, but also helps us to see as, as we really are, which is actually a lot more vacuity than the substance. And I don't mean that in the sense that there's nothing really solid there. It's shifting and moving. And what we're trying to loosen up is the concatenation of the idea of solidity. In this whole pattern, in this whole process, we're trying to loosen up this idea that we are these solid entities. I know I'm reiterating and you know, almost going back to where we started but loosen up that up so there can be space for another, there can be space for compassion to arise in our experience. Because there can be no space for compassion to arise when the ego or the self, and really when I use the word self here I mean in the sense of a solid ego, when the self is dominant, the ego is dominant, it controls all our experience, it attempts to control everything around through habit and conditioning and all the things that we talked about over the previous night. There can be no room for anything else to exist other than me. It becomes a very solipsistic world. It's my world. Maybe with very little space, as I say, for others to inhabit that world. To come into a world where that isn't the dominant factor is to come into a world of openness, but interconnectedness and that is what's so important because what the ground of shunya the ground of emptiness the ground that there is no essence nothing substantial opens up is not that somehow everything is devalued or less important but somehow what we see is the the dharma the interconnectedness the way it really is that nothing that you do does not have an impact something else I've said that actually our condition, rather than being egotistical and smug and self-sufficient, which is often the way we act in the world, as if we're somehow cut off, we are completely islanded unto ourselves. Rather than being that, this ground of interconnectedness which is opened up by this lack of essentiality, the fact that everything is somehow connected, shows me, actually, that rather than being arrogant, we should be humble. We should have a tremendous humility. And rather than uncaring, we should care because somehow we're all interlinked. We're all in the same boat. We're all, in a way, dependent on each other. Now, we've only got to think very carefully. and some of the meditations of the Tibetan tradition, you used to bring this home to me very much, was actually to, to realize. That the very stuff you're wearing, the very food that you've been eating, is dependent on all kinds of beings. Not just human beings, but human beings a lot, obviously, in the production of what we have, but all kinds of beings to simply keep you alive, to simply keep you closed. Now rather than, as I say, rather than being arrogant in this world, it's source of immense humility to think that actually I depend for virtually everything. Mm -hmm. Just like a child depends on its mother, you know, in a completely helpless state, without others, we would be completely helpless. Totally helpless. You know, we we might be able to send for ourselves, but I guess that most of us probably wouldn't these days. You know, we don't have the requisite skills anymore to do that. You know, we would do it in a very kind of halting fashion. So we are dependent on others for our very, very existence. And so this ground of interconnectedness is a ground of being together and being dependent on each other and should be a ground that actually evokes love and care and compassion for each other rather than the opposite. We destroy and we kill out out of the arrogance of the self, of the belief that I am more important than others, more important than you, more important than other species, let's not just talk about the human world. It's covered every facet of existence. So really there's a profound, profound, practical teaching in the teaching of this seemingly obscure term Shihita. And it opens up the ground of compassion. It opens up the ground of interconnectedness. It opens up the ground for the possibility of genuine relationship, of genuine care. I'm going to hold out have another promising note, so I'm going to go on to talk about care tomorrow night. Because that's really, really important. How we care. How our very embodiment can be expressive of care or couldn't care at all so I'll finish on that and uh, again open up for reflections really for the 10 on that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.